Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first ever Great Black Lives Matter debate. This is not the first of this type of session. We have done already six Great Israel-Palestine debates. We had great success with them, so we decided to expand our topic of conversation. Now, you may be wondering what, make, what makes these debates great. What makes them great is that it's not two people arguing with one another with the aim of defeating each other. Rather, two people, or three or four, working as a team to explore the issues and debate the issues, not as opponents, but as a team. The goal here is to find common ground on the most important issues we, we face today. That's what the great debate is all about. If you came here to see a fight, you won't see people fighting, but you'll see people working together to fight bad ideas and hate. Uh, and this doesn't mean we always agree. We have many disagreements, but despite our disagreements, we know how to have a good conversation and find common ground. Why did I decide to make uh, the movement for black justice the topic of conversation? Well, it's a extremely important topic. It's a topic that has people protesting all over the world. Um, and I actually personally have certain concerns with how the activism for these important issues is going. So I I, this is a way to highlight the importance of these issues and yet maybe try to shed light on ways in which we can improve activism in order to achieve the intended results we're trying to achieve. My first ever guest a con is a Congolese peace journalist, an activist and a researcher. He has eight years of experience supporting youth participation in peace building processes in Eastern Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, and Colombia. He holds a bachelor's degree in integrated community development from Daystar University in Kenya, a master's degree in international peace studies from the University of Notre Dame in the United States, and is currently a PhD researcher at the fa Faculty of Law and Criminology of Ghent University in Belgium. He's the founder of Peacemaker 360, a communication nonprofit that connects youth peace builders worldwide through storytelling and a program advisor with conductive Space and Peace, a Danish-based international organization that works on transforming the global peace building system in order to support the agency of local peace builders. I'm very, very happy to welcome Christian Sito. Welcome, Christian. Hello. Well, uh, first, first of all, thank you very much, Chada, for inviting me on this wonderful panel and really happy to be having this conversation with you. And thank you to all uh, your online viewers who are joining this conversation. I'm really hoping that it's going to be a discussion that will be insightful and enriching for all of us. So thank you for the invitation. Agreed. And it, it truly is a pleasure to have you here on this first discussion. Hold on, I'm hearing some echo. Why is that? Maybe I will mute. It's 2020 and we still face basic technical difficulties, but I think we've solved that. So, I mean, Christian, just just reading your bio, I lost breath. You've done a lot of stuff. You're very active. And I, I need to be honest with you. I'm quite concerned with the state of social activism today. I've been a social activist for six years now, and I'm seeing a form of radicalization, we could say, the reason I brought you on as the first guest is because you're not only an activist, but you work with giving activists a platform. So you have immense experience with activism. So, you know, I want to start by asking you, what do, what do you feel about the state of social activism today? 
Well, I totally agree with you, Adar, that uh, there's definitely reason to feel apprehension and anxiety around the way social activism has evolved. And uh, as myself, a social activist, it's been quite very tough, to be honest, to, to see how most recently, especially with uh, different movements rising after the killing of George Floyd and different opinions being shared around uh, racism and the need to tackle racism has really raised a lot of eyebrows on uh, how do we do it, therefore. So maybe answering to your question, uh, social justice and social activism over the past 10 decades, at least uh, one decade that I've been involved, has increased, has changed over in so many ways. And I think what is important to highlight is from the Hong Kong protests that we've seen uh, most recently, to the Black Lives Matter movement, to the revival of the climate change movement with uh, more youthful energy like Greta Thunberg, to what we've seen as the Me Too movement. One main, what I would say one main characteristic that these movements have carried is that they've vi vi uh, vividly amplified the voices of those who feel often not taken seriously when it comes to justice. And another element that these movements have highlighted is that there are some endemic and structural issues related to race, related to women's rights, related to climate protection that are not necessarily taken uh, into consideration by policymakers. And as we think of the future of the planet and the people itself, we, we have to be concerned as to what kind of future that would look when women's rights, climate rights are not taken into consideration and black people's rights are not taken into consideration. But at the same time, I think uh, three main points that I'd like to add to that is uh, maybe characteristics that have defined, in my view, uh, these movements is that they all use the word social justice. Social justice has become a buzzword, but it means different things to different groups of people. And that's really where I feel like maybe the tension starts coming in because when you're talking about the recent Black Lives Matter movement and the, the, the struggle towards amplifying the voices of African-Americans who are being uh, often and often uh, criminalized is that we all, they all talk about social justice, but social justice to Black Lives Matter is totally different to social justice to uh, of Hong Kong protest, for example. That's just to give a little bit of a comparison there. The second point that I'd like to give, uh, maybe also to maybe encourage and reach this conversation is that we've seen silos form. And, and by silos, I mean, although we are all activists, there are different groups that have consolidated their identity and their movement around a certain issue that it becomes unfortunately quite difficult to see intersection and commonalities between issues in different groups and different categories of movements. And that's really where I feel like the tension of uh, social activism is, is really embedded. And more, maybe last point I'd like to add is that uh, uh, another characteristic is that there's been a lot of creative and youthful contributions to addressing justice with technology being definitely one of the important tools, social media being one of the important tools that these activism movements have been able to highlight the issues that they're facing. And I think that's also something that I'd like to say here. It has played an important role in, in, a, in uh, 
bringing to the light what uh, issues that uh, these different movements have been able to to bring forward. So I will just leave it there for now, and maybe we can pick it much later in two. Great. Sorry, we had a quick audio hiccup, but I think it uh, it's uh, so th thank you for sharing um, that perspective. It's uh, it's refreshing to hear. And, you know, you really touched on it from a few different angles. The, the first of which you mentioned that the activism we're seeing, it, it, do, it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from a need to make the world a better place. It comes from pain that people actually have. So we, we need to recognize first that the energy is not created in a vacuum. It's created because there's injustice. Um, what, what, what I'd like to see is how we could take that energy and focus it on the things that will help us achieve our intended results. And I, I, I guess this is, this is what I think my main concern is. And, and it kind of touches to your point that you said about uh, intersectionality. I've always approached activism from a place of love. Uh, it's always been about elevating people. It's always been about not only a revolution of certain institutions, but also an evolution of society an evolution of our consciousness. Now, I recognize that I am approaching activism from a place of privilege. I'm not fighting because I am disenfranchised. I am fighting because I look around me and I see people who have less and they have less, not because they didn't work as hard as me or because they made bad decisions in life. It has nothing to do with that. They have less because they just got a worse roll of the dice. So accepting that, and it may have something to do, my, my yearning for activism has something to do that, you know, my, my family, my, my people have been persecuted for thousands of years. I still hear stories of the Holocaust from my grandmother. So I know, you know, I know what it's like to come from a people who have been oppressed and persecuted and murdered. But yet I still am coming from a place of privilege. So when I say it comes from a place of love and compassion, I recognize very well that had I been disenfranchised, it may be harder for me to see things this way. I fully understand that. I accept the anger. I accept the pain. That being said, I'm wondering if there is a way to work and take that anger and pain and manifest it into something positive. Because what I'm seeing right now, and again, I get where it comes from, but I'm seeing it's not just activism to change systems. A, a lot of the activism today, and, and this has become, you know, these voices have become very loud uh, in the, you know, in the recent Black Lives Matter protests that they have a very, very strong sense of in-group and out-group. And in-group, out-group is something that we need to work very, very hard to get over. It's, it's innate in all humans. It's essentially what causes most violence, most genocides, most conflict is seeing another group as not your own. Now, the in-group here is anybody who is deemed oppressed, allies, and to be an ally is it's just to comply, you know, you don't get to voice your opinion, you just comply. And then the enemies are essentially white men and people who don't support the movement. Now, not only is it bad that it seems like there's such a split and, and you know, m many people, w when I talk to them about this, they say, I don't know, I don't see any um, hate towards white men. So I'll give you an example. There was uh, recently a uh, someone who, who wrote for New York Times, she said, it makes her happy to see uh, white people, th that their birth rate is going down. Now, imagine if a, if, if a journalist wrote that about any other race, 
they would and should be fired immediately because it's disgraceful. Now, when you ask why that's okay to say that about white people, to say because white people are not oppressed. But here's kind of the thing. Acting demeaning towards people and group generalizing people is not wrong only because it's used by the powerful to the weak. It's wrong because we don't want to live in a society where people are demeaning and generalizing people based off the color of their skin. So I want us to approach activism from a place of how do we want the world to be? What do we want the world to look like? We need to start acting that way today. That doesn't mean we can't have a revolution. That doesn't mean we can't be making noise. And maybe there is even a need for rioting. Maybe. I'm not inherently against that. But the way we treat our brothers and sisters, we need to work to bring them towards us, build alliances, and not uh, create a bigger divide. And I'm concerned that we're creating a bigger divide. And how does this connect to intersectionality, which you, which you mentioned? You know, what intersectionality is trying to do, it's trying to group people with different struggles around a common cause. And I think the way they achieve to do that is to find a common enemy. And that just happens to be uh, the system, which is okay to fight against the system, but it's not the system. It's people who benefit from the system. That's primarily white men. So I think in order for intersectionality to, to work, they need a, a boogeyman of sorts. And that boogeyman happens to be white people, primarily white men. Uh, now, I, I think there's some benefit to uh, disenfranchised people coming together and working together, but it should not be at the expense of needing to, to create an enemy who are your fellow citizens. So that's really my thoughts on the issue. What, how do you feel about that? I think there is definitely a lot of great points that you've shared that I would like to echo as well, uh, that uh, the creation of in-groups is something that is problematic when you're thinking of social justice activism as a principle, because when you talk about social justice, we're really looking at the masses that are disenfranchised that you've mentioned quite clearly, but we're also looking beyond just the masses. We are looking at how are other groups being affected in one or the other? Why, why I talked about intersectionality is that if, for example, you're not affected by climate change, it doesn't mean there's not something that is affecting you. It could be that you're affected by another kind of issue. And I think that's really a different way of thinking about uh, social justice. It's really understanding that, as you pointed out, the need for addressing pain, pain that is in my group is not necessarily the pain that is in someone else's group, but the pain is pain. And pain uh, in all humankind is in important to address. That's why I think this in-group and out-group is definitely problematic for any social justice activist who is claiming to, be, to abide by this principle. But I'd like also to come back a little bit uh, on this concept, on this challenge that we're seeing, especially around the Black Lives Matter group, and to maybe start by setting a precedent by saying that it's also important to understand why these in-groups actually form. And I would say that uh, in my view, that for many African-Americans, for many Black people and social justice activists really pushing the Black agenda, the issue that communities are faced with, they have been able to create these in-groups because they feel so often that the rest of the world does not really care about issues affecting African-American communities until something else happens, until the police puts their knees on the neck of a brother, until we hear someone being shot on the streets on the, in the US, that's when you'll hear that other groups are also concerned about these issues. But 
When this is not happening, when we don't hear of an epitome or something that is a manifestation of the structural injustice that African Americans face, then that solidarity is not often uh, as solid or or exemplified to the towards African American communities. And I totally understand that because I think any person would be in a position whereby only until something big happens to you, until you lose a brother, until you lose a sister, that's when you get support. Then you'd want to actually ask yourself a question, who is really my brother? Who is really the other side that really supports me? But at the same time, I would like also to bring a quote from a very famous human rights scholar called Catherine Sinking, who says that you always need anger, as you've pointed out, Anger is a primordial emotion for social justice, but it can only stimulate you to action. It can motivate you to go on the streets to protest, but anger alone is not enough to actually cause change to happen. What you need besides anger is hope and hope that you can make a difference and hope that this difference is not just about you alone, but it's again about connecting with allies in all other groups and other communities that care about the same issues that you are you're bringing forward. And I think that's really, for me, very important in this conversation about in-group and out-group. It's also to understand that the anger that, for example, Black lives, uh, Black Africans, African-Americans are facing or experiencing when a brother is killed is legitimate but it's not enough in itself to address the endemic structural uh, issues that have affected African communities or black people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And for us to be able to make a, a stronger claim on these issues, I believe that we need hope that is manifested also in terms of solidarity and in terms of understanding that not everyone who is not necessarily black is necessarily an enemy. Not everyone who is on the other side of the group is, is against us. And it's really something that I think we need to start uh, uh, believing in and to start understanding in order to see how we can support each other and how we can draw alliances that make the movement and the cause uh, probably more stronger. So that's something I would like to add there. Amen, brother. Uh, very well said. I think the the concept of building alliances is something that we should i'd like to talk more about that this how we can do it uh and and it kind of i think it you know reinforces what we already said why we need to approach this again anger is fine but compassion for the others other people those who do not share our struggle because there's a lot of pain in america that exists not only in who are deemed oppressed groups like the black community and women and the LGBT community. There's a lot of pain amongst poor white men. There's a lot of pain even amongst rich white people. Now, I, I want to focus on the poor white people because there is a lot of energy amongst poor white people. That's one of the reasons why Trump got elected. Uh, and if we look at why they're anxious, some of their anxiety comes from issues that are unique to just themselves. Let's say they're worried about becoming a minority in the United States. And some people like to point that that is a result of racism, but I think anybody who is the majority would fear becoming the minority, especially 
when you're in a country that doesn't have a great history of treating minorities so well. So it seems like there's anxiety from there. And, and that's obviously anxiety that that's only relevant to white, white Americans for now. But the, the, one of the best things you could do to, to help that anxiety is, is not make it seem like there's anything wrong with being white. That, that whiteness isn't a problem, that it's okay to be a white man, that we like white men. But it seems like we're seeing quite the opposite. So what, there's an anxiety amongst white people, and that's being increased by the state of activism today that's making it seem like there's something inherently wrong with being white. So it's just increasing the amount of anxiety they have. Uh, and, and then there's also, you know, there's a there's a common trope I, common, I often hear about amongst activists that... Uh, white people should feel uncomfortable. Discomfort will make them act. Now, I, I agree that discomfort may make some people join the movement for black justice, but discomfort might also make more people support Trump. There, there, there's, no, there's no way of knowing what discomfort uh, causes. It, it could radicalize you in the wrong direction. So the assumption that we can treat people however we need to because discomfort is good, I, I just don't see, it, it doesn't quite add up. Now, we spoke about an anxiety that seems to be exclusive to white people, but there's anxiety that is shared amongst white American, black American, socioeconomics, that's a huge one. Um, lack of political representation, that's also huge. Americans feel, not just black Americans, Americans in general, feel like they do not have representation in Washington, D.C. That, that's why they're looking for outsiders like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. That's why he did well. They're, they're looking for something new. They're looking for, for outsiders. So if we want to revolutionize our systems, if we want to revolutionize the country and even the world, we need to, we need to recognize the pain in our brothers and sisters on the other side and, and bring them together towards, towards common ground. Because so much, so much of what black Americans are fighting for that can resonate with white Americans if the conversation is had. It really can. So that's what I, you know, I really think we should focus on building a broader coalition, unifying the country, not working to divide it. Do you have any thoughts on that or any ideas how we could further unite? I agree with you actually on that point that uh, the need for listening and allowing a dialogue that is more constructive where the other groups that are not necessarily on our side can be able to share their source of anxiety and the kind of issues that they care about. And in the example that you've shared, I think uh, when you look at poor white uh, Americans, as you've said, uh, they have issues as well. They may be facing some uh, socioeconomic challenges. They may be also lacking uh, representation. And because of that, uh, they may also feel the need to support um, right-wing politics that may represent some of their needs and their interests. And I think what I am seeing probably in the, in the, in the context of the U.S. is this rise of a nationalist kind of identity, which is something that I feel like we need to also maybe bring into the conversation. There is nothing wrong with being white and there's nothing wrong with being black. There's nothing wrong with... Uh, uh, being in a community that holds a certain identity that you feel proud of. I'm proud to be black, someone else is proud to be white, and it's, it's okay with that. But I feel like in the conversation we're having around social justice, one thing that we need to identify is not necessarily the color of our skin, it's really the systemic and the structural issues that affect humankind, 
that bring suffering and pain that you referred to earlier. And that is what binds us together. Because otherwise, if we are really going to just limit ourselves to the color of our skin and the reason why we believe in things because of the color of our skin, then we are still really having a shallow conversation. But the time we move past that and start looking at what are the structural issues that affect white and black, brown and, and yellow, that really needs to be brought into the conversation. For example, in the very same context of the US, we rarely talk about how indigenous people are affected by the current issues, by the current uh, structures of power that do not necessarily create opportunity for them, that do not necessarily create voice for them. And these are also Americans. Why aren't they part of the discussion? And I think this is really where it's quite important for me, and I really think that's a point I'd like to add. It's not really about the color of your skin. It's really about to what extent are we able to galvanize alliances that look at the structural issues that affect all of us? Because what is happening to a black person in terms of social injustice is manifested differently to an indigenous person, is manifested differently to a white person, and we need to see this happening from a structural level in order to be able to work as a strong movement. I, I love what you just said. Um, be, before, before we continue, I just, uh, I, I wanna put some focus on a comment we got in the comment section about BLM being a movement that, that's uh, funded and controlled by George Soros. Uh, I'm not, you know, there's some conspiratorial themes going on there that I'm not gonna address now, but I do want to talk about Black Lives Matter, the organization compared to Black Lives Matter, the movement. And it gets confusing, and I think there should be a rebranding. So there's Black Lives Matter, the organization, uh, and it's very legitimate to um, criticize this organization. I can't even say I support the Black Lives Matter organization. Then there's the Black Lives Matter movement and slogan uh, that is just the movement for black justice. It's, it's a movement for justice for black people. So when I refer to the movement, I say the movement for black justice. If I say Black Lives Matter, I, I generally am referring to the organization. The reason I call this the great Black Lives Matter debate is because that's a buzzword that everybody knows, so it's catchy enough. Uh, I hope that provides some clarity. Uh, back to what you said, Christian, uh, building alliances to, to change structure. So it's so refreshing hearing you say that, but many people would consider you radical for those ideas. You know, the, the state of activism today, uh, it, it, it's your views are considered as radical. I mean, to me, they sound super coherent, super unifying. They sound like the solution and the state of activism we're in, you know, A, a you're, you, someone like you is not likely to get a platform with those views. You, the, the, the people who are getting platforms in the media today are the ones who are pushing the, the very uh, race oriented, the, the, the one focused on division. Those are the voices that are being heard. So I'm gonna propose this live on air. I, I think that we should start uh, some kind of a new movement, a new organization. We should try to bring on activists from all over the world. Obviously we need a heavy focus on activists from the United States. But I, I think that we are the silent majority. And it's not that you and I are silent, but we don't have the same platforms as what many of these activists have. So, uh, you know, I would like to have this be the start of something new where we could really share our ideas of 
what activism is, obviously we understand that the pain is justified, it's acceptable, it's necessary. How do we transform that, like you said, into hope? How do we transform that into love? How do we have a conversation that includes all people and that's, and that's focused not on vague concepts like ending racism, but actual concepts that we could attain like true structural change. So I'm just putting it out there. I don't want to put you on the spot. You can think about it if you, if you want to start something like this, but I think it can be great. Um, do, you, do you want to talk a little bit about what the structures that you think need to be reformed are, actual policy? Because I think one area of critique I have is that uh, you know, the movement seems to lack some coherence that it's not quite clear what policies are trying to be implemented. Uh, Black Lives Matter, the organization doesn't have any policy positions on their website. Uh, j just to name a few uh, on my end that, that seem very obvious, you know, let's end the war on drugs. And it, it should have been ended decades ago. Let's end the war on drugs. Let's decriminalize and even legalize all drugs. We need to stop treating drug users, drug addicts as criminals. We need to treat, treat them as patients, they're sick. Uh, we need to end the fact that property tax funds public schools. That is a super classist policy that keeps poor people poor. And that is exemplified, exa uh, exasperated in black communities because of the legacy of racism and redlining uh, and dr drastic uh, reform of the police. There's an awesome, awesome uh, campaign called Campaign Zero. And most people have never heard of Campaign Zero. Hold on, I'm gonna do a share screen real quick, just cause I, I, uh, I wanna show people what this looks like. I'm not gonna go through it now, I just want people to, to see. So look, this is a 10, a 10 piece policy position. And it's all, it's super coherent, it's specific, it explains what needs to be done. Why are we not hearing about this? Like, why are we not hashtagging Campaign Zero? We're hearing a, a whole bunch of other stuff, but not actual policy that can actually elevate disenfranchised people. So I really would like for us to focus on policy and on unity. I think that really is, is the way forward. What, what are your thoughts on, on specific policy positions? Well, definitely there is uh, value in being quite clear in terms of policies that need to be changed and policies that need to be improved for these structural issues that we've been discussing to be able to be addressed. So when you talk about, for example, the criminalization of, uh, of, of drug addicts and uh, we talked about the, the, the war on drugs, we talked about issues to do with uh, police violence, police brutality. I think there needs to be quite clear and quite specific demands that are being brought forward in terms of policy formulations. But I also want to say that uh, policy alone is not going to be sufficient because it's a top-down approach to addressing structural issues. And I think what we are doing and what we should continue to do is creating these spaces that are more bottom-up, where we can hear voices of all kinds of actors. It's not just the allies. We also need to hear voices from those who do not necessarily agree with us. And the dialogue has to go in all directions to understand where the other parties are coming from. What are the reasons why they do not agree with us? For example, right here in the chat section, I'm hearing a comment from uh, James Tang who says, 
would mental emancipation help African-Americans? And he says, why do black people need whites to say they matter to feel as though they matter? This is where I'm confused. And he may have that opinion, but in, as far as I'm concerned, I don't agree with it. And I would like to bring him on board so we can have a dialogue on why he thinks that white, uh, black people need white people to tell them they matter. We do not need you to tell tell us we matter. We know we matter. And we matter because we believe in who we are. And if you think that we care about what you say that makes us feel that we matter, then we want to hear why you think that way and have a conversation. The point I'm trying to drive across here, Adar, is that these bottom-up movements, these bottom-up dialogue spaces are as important as, formula, uh, as policy formulations or policy recommendations that can come from the top level so that we can talk about issues that are really affecting the real people rather than just limiting these uh, policy discussions only to top level uh, decision makers. And the last point I would like to give is while our emphasis and conversation right now has been mostly focused on a US centric kind of platform or kind of landscape, but let's try to move a little bit from the US focus to look at other contexts. I believe these issues related to racism, related to mistreatment of minority groups are not only happening in the US, they are happening in Latin America, they are happening in Africa, they are happening in many other contexts. And I think it's really very important to move from the discussion that brings the US always at the center of the world's attention. There are quite other issues happening in Philippines, in Colombia, in Nepal, in other parts of the world that concern racism that needs to be into the conversation. And I think that's really where I would like also to encourage if we are bringing, developing a movement like this, to really be open to hearing other voices, to open, to bring our radar in a different landscape, in a different geographical context and understand these issues and how they may be connected to what is happening in the US and other parts of the world. Well put. I'm with you. Um, I, I'd like to address some comments because we are getting some co comments, some questions. We're we're going to pull them up on the screen, uh, guys. Feel free to to uh, to ask questions now. So you, you know, James, you, you've said a few different things. I'm going to bring this one on, but there there's a common theme. You know, Christian was also referring to your comments. Look. Can you understand where looting comes from? Imagine if you have been poor your entire life. You don't see much access to opportunity. Maybe you just had to stay home for a full month because of Corona. All of a sudden there's lawlessness and you could essentially steal from a insurance company because these big shops have insurance. Can you see the appeal in that? Could you at least understand where it comes from? Let's start by understanding. If you wanna be able to get a message across to anybody, understand where they are coming from, empathize with their struggle, and then engage them in dialogue. It very well may be the case that looting is counterproductive, but understand where it comes from and, and hear the people who are lo looting out. It, it, it does nothing to just disregard their pain, and we're seeing too much of that. Um, anything you'd like to add to that one, uh, Christian? Yes, definitely. I think I totally agree that it's quite important before you make a statement of judgment against any person that you understand where they're coming 
coming from. And unfortunately, uh, this is also permanent within our own social justice movements. And when we talked about the scientification of how we see uh, social justice groups developing, as you pointed out, in groups and out groups, we easily can make a judgment and say, well, these people are doing it the wrong way and these people are doing it the wrong way, but we don't take the step back to understand why are they acting the way they are acting? And maybe answering to James as well, while I don't actually support looting and robbing, I think it's quite important to understand the very state of vulnerability and, uh, and, and fragility that many African-Americans are found in right now in terms of answering to their basic needs. And the anger that we talked about, it's not just looting. Most of them, many people who had been on the streets did not just go to loot. They were really angry and frustrated at the system itself. And sometimes rage is acceptable. You know, you need to be angry to be able to share to the world that this is what is happening to you. But it's not right to just say we can go and break down the streets, uh, the stores and break down the shops. It's not okay to say that we will go and destroy every person's business out there. What I believe is important is to find the best ways and the best approaches to channel this anger in a way that is constructive. And we've been talking about, for example, uh, policy formulations, having a very clear agenda on what exactly do we need to be changed and making sure that people in power, people in position of power, understand that these issues are priority for some communities. And if they are not taken into consideration, then of course on the ballot or on the census, we will know what to do. So those are, those are very, there are many productive ways to redirect anger in a way that addresses the problem rather than create more problems on top of it. So that's just my comment to, to that. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. Um, I'm gonna bring up another comment. Because I count, thank you for your question. Be careful about le legalizing drugs. This will need an understanding of family's mental health history and warned you could end up unwell. So it's important to understand that Legalizing drugs does not necessarily mean more people will take drugs. We actually have evidence to the contrary. In places where drugs are legalized, less people are using those drugs. Was it Spain or Port Portugal was a great example of this. They had a huge heroin problem. They, I believe, decriminalized heroin and the amount of addicts went down by 50%. What's the benefit of legalizing drugs? It, it's true that drugs do affect many people's lives, but Right now, if you are a drug addict and you get caught with drugs, you go to jail. It doesn't help you with your addiction. You could also get many of those drugs in jail. You get out of jail and you're still in the same cycle of drug use. Instead, we need to put them in treatment facilities, help them overcome th their addiction. Now, in addition to that, the second it's legalized and regulated, A, you kill black markets that, that uh, weakens cartels and gangs. You also get immense tax revenue that you could further invest into disenfranchised neighborhoods, but also the quality of, of the drugs you're getting is much better. So a lot of people are dying in the United States right now because they're getting heroin that is uh, tainted with fentanyl and fentanyl is much stronger, much stronger than heroin. And they, they, the, uh, drug dealers add some fentanyl to make the product stronger. If drugs were legal, then you wouldn't have an issue of getting tainted drugs and you'd have much less people dying. So a, we can kill black markets and create revenue. Um, and we also help 
we, we help people instead of putting them in jail and we keep them safe by making sure that the product that, that they're using is good and not tainted. So there's so many reasons why we should legalize drugs. Um, that's my thoughts. And, and Christian, feel free to chime in and add, you know, whenever you want. We're, we're just doing a, a freestyle session now. Great. Uh, maybe just commenting on what uh, Gabrielle has shared right now. Ma Gabrielle McLean says that uh, she's fortunate yeah, here in Canada that the black lives, uh, yeah, black lives, black equality does not come at a high cost to other minorities, but uh, there are issues in the US and other places where the movement requires uh, more attention, I think. Well, I agree. I think uh, it also depends on what country from what. Jay Christian, sorry to interrupt, just, this is two of two, so that she ended it by so, saying, how does someone support? Uh, I, I put on the screen two of two, so you can see it. All right, so how does someone support uh, people? Yeah. Seems to be yourself. Now, this is really quite challenging, and I think this is one area that I believe that is important to bring into discussion, that at times, it's quite important to look at the other side's before you can decide whether you support them or not. One of the reasons why we quickly will not support any movement is because we are not willing to walk in their shoes. We are not really willing to understand the kind of pain and suffering that motivates their, their action. But if we take that step of understanding, it's not necessarily meaning that we we'll support them, but it's at least means that we'll take a very informed decision on why not to support them because we understand fully why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that's really my own comment. And I think I would just encourage again, these spaces of dialogue, I would encourage again, these spaces of conversation where we can listen to one another. And I would like to hear, for example, from Gabriel, what kind of movement do you support? And why do you support this kind of movement? Why is it important for you? Because if I know why it's important for you, then I can at least understand where you're coming from. And I, th I think that's the same thing that applies uh, to Black Lives Matter, that applies to climate change movement, that applies to Me Too movement. It's really taking the step to understanding those who are coming forward with their justice issues, why are they coming forward and what motivates them? And I believe that starts with a dialogue. To add to, add to that, um you know, Gabrielle, I, I definitely get what you're saying. There's there's a framing of the issue as if uh, white people in America are living well at the expense of black people. I can see that case being more clear in times of slavery when white people were benefiting off free labor. Although there is a caveat there because poor white people also did not get a great end of the deal when it came to slavery because they were pushed out of the job market because rich white people were getting slave owners for cheaper labor than what they could pay uh, white people. But th that being said, in today's world, I don't see many areas where black justice comes at the expense of white people living well. And I think this is an issue in the framing. People make it seem like in order for, for disenfranchised people to elevate, we need to pull those at the top down. But that's just not the case. We need to pull everybody up. Uh, there, there's not a single, you know, the concept of white privilege, every privilege a white person has today is a privilege that every other person should have. We sh white people should not get any privilege taken away. It's just these privileges should be granted to all other people. And I have not yet heard the case 
how white people today are living well at the expense of, of black people and other minorities, I, I, I don't see it. Can the case be made? Perhaps I'm, I'm open to, to changing my mind on this, but it seems like we very well can elevate everybody without any single individual needing to uh, be pulled down, aside from maybe the wealthiest in society that may need to pay more in taxes in order to, you know, to truly create a more just system. More questions. That's a really good um, comment. I agree that we don't need to everybody down, but it's really about bringing everybody up. I really like that comment. Yeah, and and Gabrielle, you know, you, feel free to push back. You know, if, if you see an area in which uh, white people are living well at the expense of of other people, then you know, uh, I'd I'd be interested in hearing that. If anything, I'd say the case could be made that all Americans are living better at the expense of, let's say, Africans. Because there, you know, there is the case that a lot of the resources in Africa are being, Christian, you might know more about this than me, but resources in Africa are, are being taken in unfair deals to help boost Western economies and African economies are not getting a, a fair end of the deal. Uh, but this would kind of put white people, white Americans, black Americans in the same category, and then um, Af Africans who live in Africa in another category, they are suffering at the expense of first world countries. Is that a, is that a fair assessment, Christian? Yes, it is a fair assessment because, as you pointed out, many of the African, just taking the example of my own country, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the country has gone through uh, instability and conflict for the past almost three decades. And one of the main reasons why Congo is not at peace is because of the rich minerals that it contains. And for those who are informed, uh, the cobalt is a mineral that is produced in Congo and we are the number one producer of cobalt in the world that is used to make gadgets and technology. It's also used to make, to make cell phones. So, these are, these are things, uh, these are deals that are signed between our government leaders with multinational corporations that are extracting minerals, but it's not always with the knowledge of the population, of, of the masses, on what kind of deals are being made. And more than anything, it goes at the expense of losing people's lives because all the conflicts that we've had, all the armed rebellions that we've had, were basically they have. But we're also talking about inequality in terms of, uh, uh, sh of conflicts and human rights violations that are imposed or brought to innocent lives because of, uh, uh, of the minerals that we have. Now, there is a question that I see here from James again, who asks, uh, nothing racist, but if Africans built America, what in the hell is going on in Africa? Well, first of all, it's good to just take note of history, right? Uh, when you know you understand what happens in terms of building America, then you have to know that uh, there were slaves that were brought to America. And slavery was not uh, an African design. This was not something that Africans themselves wanted, but it was forced on us brutally with um, many, many, many lives that for lost during this period of time. So when you're talking about building America, it's really good to keep in mind the history of slavery. If you have that in mind, then we can have a good conversation. The second point you're talking about is what is happening therefore in Africa. As you can understand, I'm not, uh, I'm not bringing uh, all the problems of Africa. Africa has its own problems and leadership in Africa itself is 
has to be dealt with separately. So African leaders need to sit by themselves and understand that they also have responsibility. But it's also important to understand the unfavorable positions that these leaders find themselves in when they are coming to discuss with superpowers, with uh, countries that already had uh, a certain legacy of monopoly of ruling over these countries, then it becomes a really very unfavorable or unequal uh, standing ground, if you may, in terms of making these decisions and in terms of bargaining uh, a very share, a fair deal for African leaders and for Africans themselves. So that is one thing I'd like to say. To answer to your question, the history of slavery will tell you more why Africa is where it is. And secondly, African leaders, yes, have responsibility to build Africa and to develop their own countries. But when it comes to a geopolitical uh, level, you understand that African leaders are not always in the best positions because exactly of the backdrop of slavery and colonizations and colonization that have made African uh, countries to be a little bit at an advantageous place to, to bargain or to, 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 uh, to make a strong claim on, on issues that concern African people. Yeah, and to add to that, I, I would say that a it, it's it's a fallacy that you know there aren't booming African economies. You know, Africa is enormous, way bigger than we think, because the way the map our, our maps make certain countries look smaller. It's actually interesting. It's called Mercator projection, and whatever, look up uh, map projection, and you'll see what the it, there's a trade-off in maps. Either you have the shape right or the size right. And we have the shape right, but the sizes are all wrong. Africa is much bigger than you think. And countries like Nigeria, Ethiopia, they have booming economies. Um, you know, a Africa within the next few decades has potential to, to truly be a, a, one of the largest purchasing powers in the entire world. So, you know, di different, different cultures, different societies value different things. They have, they have, um, access to different resources, political structures. We, we, we shouldn't value countries based off, you know, how much technology they have. Maybe they just value that stuff less. You know, there, there are many, and, and this is true in the Middle East as well. There are many Middle Eastern communities and African communities that don't have the same desire to build and, and create all this stuff. It's actually to just live in harmony, you know, in, in their community. So we, we shouldn't judge different communities for wanting to live in, in different ways. We need to accept that the world is a large place. Communities have the right to do what they want to do as long as they're respecting others. And we should respect, you know, any community that doesn't want to live in our Western capitalist way. Question time. Christian, maybe what we'll do um, while I'm speaking, you could, you could look at some questions that you want to talk about. And when you're speaking, I'll do that as well. So, so we just have a, a flow going, uh, and, and guys, if this is your first time on my channel, you know, I'm doing weekly content every week. Uh, please like the video, please subscribe, share it with friends. The, the idea here is really to, to build a platform where we can have good and productive conversations on a wide array of issues. The state of discourse today is quite sad. Social media is filled with people fighting, people attacking one another. We want to do something different. We want this to be a platform where people can actually come and see and learn about issues and see how people can engage in a respectful and productive manner.
Christian, you want to you want to take anything? Yes, um, uh, scrolling down, and there is a comment I think by Ido uh, Gold. He says that how about the African? Yeah, let's pull this one. Up. Yes, how about the African tribes that were themselves slave traders and the white slaves? Um, yes, right question indeed. Uh, if you're looking at slavery and the time that this happened, indeed, there were some African tribes and African communities that contributed to slavery or participated in the slave trade. But I would like also to mention that it's never been part of the African culture to sell another human being. This slave trade was also inculcated and brought to us by the Arabs. And just like any other system, if you are brought up to believe that you can achieve anything in the world, just like it is in the, in, in the US, then you go with the, in the world with that kind of mentality. During the time of slavery, these African tribes and communities that contributed to, slave, uh, to slavery were also taught to believe that by selling other members of their communities, then they will become the most powerful. They will become even uh, their powers will expand and they will be able even to be able to conquer other communities and other territories and expand. So you will find that most kings, most tribal leaders who invested in, in slave trade worked alongside uh, Europeans and Arabs that provided them with guns and ammunitions in order to be able to actually do this, this kind of work. So one thing I would like also to mention to that is that in Africa, and I'm not speaking here on behalf of all Africans, one thing I know for sure, you will always find good and bad in all kinds of communities, right? Either it is in the white community or in Africa or in Europe, you'll find always people who stand on the side for justice and people who stand against justice. This is not something that we are debating. But one thing I'd like to share and add to what uh, Adar said, this platform is really about changing the discourse, is really about attracting conversations that are not opposing us at each other, but looking at issues that bring us together and issues that I think should bring us together, especially in a time when we're talking about racism and anti-racism. I think it's really important to look at the structural issues that make uh, different communities feel anxiety around race. And if these issues are brought into conversation, then we will be able to look very closely where can we support one another. And I think that's really going to be the very unique niche and the very unique uh, uh, footprint that this platform can have on, on, on the platform of debates. Yeah, and just to add, so Ido, you know, if I were to just see your your comment, you know, in a vacuum, I, I would think that what why is it relevant, you know, that Africans were involved? You know, we're not trying to blame anybody, and everybody involved in slavery is long dead. It's their ancestors that are trying to fix the world um, that that we inherited from our ancestors. But I. I realize that you're likely saying that as a response to what we what Christian and I already acknowledged as a problem that there's a lot of you know group division a lot of hate so it seems like it's often it's often said that you know white people are responsible for slavery that's true they're responsible for a lot of slavery and North Africa is responsible perhaps for even more but 
don't get don't feel offended when you hear white people are responsible for slavery because you, you didn't do anything about it. You, you didn't own any slaves. You didn't support slavery. You were born in a world where you were probably born in a world in a country where there were no slaves. So don't don't get defensive by, by that idea. Um, it, it's it's not about pointing fingers. It's about finding solutions. Um, I want to I want to bring up another comment. Uh, this is from Gabrielle. You know, we, we already started this conversation and she, she, you know, anyone just tuning in, her concern was that it's hard to join a movement that, uh, you know, wants to bring other people down. Uh, and this, this, her last comment, all people deserve equality, respect, justice, but just finding a place to give that voice that then does feel like I'm supporting organizations that give focus to opposing other minorities. So, Gabrielle, I'm, I'm fully with you uh, on this. There is a fair amount of anti-Semitism uh, in social justice movements. There's definitely anti-Israel sentiment. That's a slightly separate issue, but Jews have not been included in intersectionality generally. And this, I believe, is one of the flaws in intersectionality that it seems like there's a criteria. You need to be a group that is oppressed or disenfranchised, but you also need to be below the median income range because it's very hard. It's harder to prove that Jews are oppressed when Jews generally are above median income range. So it just doesn't fit the narrative because the way that, you know, the intersectional movement proves that people are oppressed, they generally look at how much they look at the end result of how much they're earning. So the narrative starts to break down when you include uh, Jewish people in there. Obviously, it's wrong. Most anti-Semitic attacks in the United States happens to be against Jewish people. They very well should be included in the intersectional movement. Um, but more so than that, so should poor white people. Classism is one of the largest areas of disprivilege and disparities between Americans. Um, I'm going to say something slightly controversial, and if, if someone disagrees, I'm very happy to hear why you disagree. But I think that a, middle, a black person in a middle-class family has access to more opportunity than a poor white person in America. Now, this does not mean that that middle-class black person does not face discrimination and injustice that that white person will never know. They certainly do. But if we're, if we're measuring it as access to opportunity, good education, good jobs, well, then I'd say, you know, as much as race is an important factor, we cannot forget socioeconomic. So intersectionality needs to include, A, oppressed groups, regardless of their socioeconomics, and all, all poorer groups, regardless of their race. That's a more complete intersectional movement. Christian, all you, if you, if you got something. Well, I think uh, when you talk about intersectionality and how it's exclusive of some groups versus uh, and, and not of others, I think I agree that uh, it should be more inclusive of all people who are experiencing any form of irrespective of their background, irrespective of their color. And it's also something that I think uh, related to your comment about uh, black Africans or black Americans being more, uh, can you just repeat that? Because I didn't grasp it quite clearly. Yeah, I, I said, I, I think the case could be made that if you're a, bl a black American from a middle-class family, you have more access to opportunity than 
than a poor white American. That here, the, the, the biggest disparity between in opportunity is not race, it's class. And, and, and I mentioned that even if you're a class black person, you still have, you face discrimination that a poor white person will not. That is true. But access to opportunity, the largest disparity is dependent on class. Yeah, I think that's definitely a point you've made there, definitely. When you talk about class and race, these are also very connected issues. At times, we tend to conglomerate all Africans or all African-Americans in one group and think that everybody is poor and experiencing the same degree of uh, injustice. Justice. But within the African community, there are definitely different classes that are experiencing differently uh, structural inequalities. And I think some people are even at a better place and more privileged than white, uh, white poors that I think uh, could be able to, to experience. They don't necessarily experience what some people, uh, some Africans on the lower rank of this uh, privilege scale, if I can say, are able to experience. So that's definitely a good point. But again, the point I want to also drive home is personally I'm going to be leaving out soon from the call because I have another commitment, is to say that this has been really a very important conversation. Why? Because when we're talking about uh, bringing voices of different divides on the call, I really appreciated it because I've had a chance to talk to people whom I don't necessarily agree with. And I feel like we do want to encourage this kind of dialogues. Not all the time we have to say we are in the same agreement on this and on that. The point is really just to have a dialogue and to understand where each one of us is coming from. And then, then we can be able to understand where can we build solidarity because humankind, it doesn't matter where we are from. Either I'm from Congo, from the US or from Cambodia, from Colombia, at some point we all experience pain. And pain is something that will hurt everyone. So if we can be able to look at pain as something that we bring together in this dialogue, then we can find maybe possibilities to find alliances and to find uh, uh, or, uh, networks that can support one another, maybe in different times or in different moments. And that is really what I think will make social justice and social activism really more inclusive, more intersectional, and more representative of all kinds of voices that are all important to be included. Not just some, but all voices. So thank you very much, Adar, for inviting me in the call. And thank you, everyone, for the great conversation and the contributions. I've learned a lot from you. And I really look forward to continuing this discussion. Maybe we can stay in touch as well through Facebook on our Peacemaker 360 page. And uh, please, let's continue the dialogue. The dialogue is the key. Thank you, brother. It, it really was a true pleasure. You know, a lot of what you said is super enlightening. And I think you really gave people a perspective that that they needed to hear. And I'm, I'm looking forward to continue to, to working with you to building these these important alliances we need to, to create true social justice. So again, Christian, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, yeah. Well, one more thing. So uh, Christian mentioned it. Uh, Christian's uh, link to his Facebook is in the description of both the event and the video. Reach out to him. He's happy to connect, happy to engage in dialogue. Uh, there, I will also add a link to his uh, organization, Peacemakers 360, which is an awesome organization. Uh, thanks again, Christian. It was great having you. Fantastic. We'll be in touch. Take care, guys. Stay safe out there.
Cool, everybody. Um, I'm happy to stand for a few more minutes if you guys want to chat a little bit. Why is my screen still small? Make it big. There we go. Um, I just put in the links, uh, Christian's NGO. I'm going to, I'll keep, I'll keep, uh, as long as you guys are engaging and asking questions, I'll continue. I could do another 15, 20 minutes, no problem. Uh, there was something, James, you go, you're going to ruffle some feathers with that comment. I think you're referring to the comment where black people have more access to opportunity than white people. It's true. I may ruffle feathers. When I decided to get into activism six years ago, I understood that I'm, there's a sacrifice. I am putting myself out there and speaking on highly controversial issues. So no matter what, I will be attacked. And I decided it's a, it's a sacrifice I'm willing to take. So I take that sacrifice and I deal with the consequences all the time, both positive and negative. I get a great pleasure from working to help make this world a better place. It gives me meaning. I love what I do. And yet I'm constantly being attacked and I've come to accept that. Obviously, it's not easy, but that's just, you know, part of the game we can, we can say. Um, I think, you know, I, I position myself where I, I have immense critique of social justice movements. So I get attacked from within social justice movements. And there's a lot of people who don't like to hear about social justice. They're comfortable in their bubble. They like the way their life is. They don't want to hear it. So I get attacked or ridiculed from that side as well. So it kind of comes from both ends. To me, that's just a sign that I'm that I'm doing something right. If people on all sides of the political spectrum have some complaint towards me, I see that as something positive because at the same time, I have uh, supporters on all sides of the pol political spectrum. I'm able to have engaging conversations with anybody. Uh, so I see that as something positive in in my approach. It comes with getting attacked, but again, it's just part of the game, and I'm I'm happy to happy to accept that. Okay, let, uh, Gigi Green, Gigi again. Thank you for uh, for being in all these lives. Obviously, there's a lot we disagree on, but I do appreciate you being here and asking questions. Uh, and if it's pronounced Gigi, please let me know. But I have a feeling it's Gigi. So Gigi's asking, do you think I should have done more research on the Black Hebrews before interviewing that guy from Demona? So Gigi's referring to a podcast episode I did with Ashrael ben Israel from the Hebrew Israelite community in Demona. So uh, no, I don't think I should have done more research because I know about that community. I know what they're. I, I know what the concerns about them are. Um, there, there is some level of black supremacy amongst them. Uh, there is sexism amongst them. These things exist. But it's crucial to not generalize based off group. That's what I'm all about. So, again, there's Jewish supremacists um, amongst Jews. Jeffrey Epstein is a pedophile. Harvey, Harvey Weinstein also sexually abused. That says nothing about me as an individual. So group generalization is wrong. It's what racists do. And it's what it's what the social justice orthodoxy is doing, right? They're saying all white people are like this, all cops are like this. I am strongly against group gener 
generalization. So certain groups, if you look at them as a group, yes, they have some characteristics, sure. But that says nothing about the individual. And in order to truly, truly elevate humanity, we need to view the individual and not the group. Knowing what group someone's from says absolutely, not, not absolutely nothing, but it says very, very little about who they are as a person. So Gigi, please keep that in mind. Um, Ashriel Ben Israel, despite our disagreements, he's a smart guy, he's compassionate, he's an activist that's truly trying to elevate um, the black community in Israel. I haven't seen any signs of black supremacy from him. I haven't seen any signs of hate from him, despite our disagreements. Gabrielle, with your class comment, I think the issue I think the issue within that are that in each class there is still disparity. Poor black people are less equal than poor white people. Also, violence will always be unequal regardless of class. You are 100% correct. Privilege is layered, right? That A poor black person and a poor white person are not equal because there's still the disprivilege that comes with with being black. And that could be discrimination in the workplace, discrimination to police, 100%. Again, privilege is layered and, and it gets way more complex than just class and race. Tall people are more likely to get jobs. Handsome people have an easier time in life. If you're intelligent, you have access to all sorts of opportunity than people who are unintelligent. So, so again, these are all layers of privilege and it, it, it's hard to understand a person's status and level of privilege based off just one characteristic. So yeah, it, it is important to look at every layer of privilege individually and see what policy we could put forth, um, whether it's policy or just better education we could put forth in, in order to, to change those disparities. So I, I do agree with you completely and that's my approach at how to look at privilege. So Gigi, in response to what I said at the end of the podcast, he said they're going to turn to violence. I don't remember him saying this, but but let's let's assume he did because I, I do believe you. That wasn't a threat. He was just saying that the black community is reaching a boiling point, and once they reach that point, there will be violence. It wasn't a threat. It was reality. We're seeing that happen in America right now. The violence is a result of pent up anger, uh, pain, anxiety. So, you know, acknowledging that there will be violence isn't wrong. That's, it's similar to, to for an Israeli to say, if Palestinians, uh, you know, kill Israelis, there will be violence. That, Gigi, I'm sure that's a statement that, that you yourself uh, would agree with. I personally don't agree. I think that we should we should try not to respond to violence with violence, but you could see that it's a very, quite reasonable statement and it's not something that only the black community is threatening with. Let's say it seems like there are no more questions. So to those joining us again, thank you so much. I'm always happy for suggestions. If you think something could have been done better here, let me know. Uh, if you like what you see again, please subscribe, share this with your friends and family up like uh, give the video a thumbs up. I see only four thumbs up and there's eight people watching now. So let's increase that. Uh, yeah, and that's it, guys. Uh, much love from Israel. The next discussion I'm going to do is probably, 
on Monday. It's going to be a great Israel-Palestine debate. It's going to be done with Antoine Saka and Yehuda Hakohen, both living in the West Bank. It's going to be very, very interesting. Um, 